as we were singing that last song, I was, I was thinking certainly how apropos for this next series, but I was thinking particularly if every counselee that I've had across my desk, if every person I've engaged in discipleship, if every member of this church, if myself, if Naomi and Elimelech would have believed such a truth, then they, we, would not run. We wouldn't run. The book of Ruth tells us everyone's story Even your story, my story, story about, at least in part, the hardships of life. We need stories like the book of Ruth, stories that have good conclusions. I'm not sure if you've read all the way through the book of Ruth yet. You should have, hopefully, at least at some point or another. But we need stories like the book of Ruth that have good conclusions. Ones that help us to look beyond our troubles and disappointments, ultimately to a brighter future. To something beyond what we're in right now. And as you've read many times in the scriptures, there are stories that don't end like the book of Ruth ends. They end badly. They end poorly, pointing us to a future hope, but here in the midst of the Old Testament, we have a book that that ends well, a book that ends pointing us not just to future hope, but the hope for something now. You see, when the hope of others becomes a reality, it begins to offer us perspective, a different view. In the book of Ruth, We'll see, even today, at least one of the two people in the, in the story that have great moral characteristics. We'll see a couple examples. One will be Ruth's undying loyalty to her mother-in-law, the widow in her life. You'll see her commitment to her, her compassion for her, her love for her. We'll see that today. We won't see this second one till later, but you'll see Boaz's wonderful compassion toward two destitute widows. One who wasn't even an Israelite, but a foreigner, a pagan, a Gentile. So you'll see these great moral characteristics like loyalty and compassion. Two great moral virtues that indeed should be emulated, that we should live by. And yet, the book of Ruth is ultimately about something so much more than just simply two people with great characteristics for us us to emulate. The book of Ruth, I hope you'll see over the next few weeks, is ultimately about the gospel. It's ultimately about God's work of redemption through Jesus Christ. It is pointing us to look there. To gaze, to to look ahead, at least from Ruth's point, to what we now look back towards to be the gospel, and yet has incredible application and hope for us right now as we see the book of Ruth pointing forward and as we live looking back to see the hope of the gospel. The book of Ruth is ultimately about the gospel. It's more than a story encouraging us to be morally good like Ruth and Boaz, as important as those are. You say, but where is the gospel? Where is Jesus? Where is a Messiah? Where are these things even mentioned in the book of Ruth? And admittedly, they're not there on the surface. It never mentions a Messiah's name. So where is the gospel? I want to start with giving us a little bit of context for the book of Ruth as we start this series. And I, and I, have, to, I have to admit, like, I'm a little giddy this morning because we've been not preaching through books of the Bible now since uh, what, the beginning of the summer. Is that about right? Uh, 
and just enjoy being in books of the Bible. I hope you enjoy being in books of the Bible. We're going to be here till probably Advent time or Christmas time. Uh, then we'll do an Advent series, and then we'll probably pick back up in another book of the Bible after the first of the year. But I'm excited to be settled down in a book, and we can press forward and work through this section by section and see the gospel unfold here in the book of Ruth. So as we start the book of Ruth, I want to give us a little bit of context. I, I was uh, debating on starting at like Genesis and then working our way up through to Ruth, and I, I felt like our sermons are already long enough, so uh, we'll start in the book of Judges. How about that? Uh, which is kind of the immediate context for the book of Ruth. So if you want before Judges, you're going to have to go read all that yourself. Here's the content. I want to give you the book of Judges in kind of three sections really quick. The first section of the book of Judges, and, and understand that the writing of the book of Judges, the period of, the period of time of the book of Judges is the period in which the book of Ruth is written, has taken place. Uh, that's the context of, of the people of Israel in which Naomi and Elimelech find themselves. So three periods, if you will, for the book of Judges. Really quickly, the first section, if you go read the book of Judges, you'll see that as the Israelites took over the land, the promised land, they failed to finish the conquest and allowed pockets of Canaanites to remain and eventually regroup. Right? So that, that's how we kind of begin the book of Judges, is they're given this blessing but then they failed to do what all God told them to do. Then the generation after Joshua did not keep faith with their covenant God. You'll see this in various ways. It takes place. and So then you have these judges. They have to come rescue them and so on and so forth. But what began, here's the key, what began as complacency and tolerance among God's people Again, leaving the Canaanites to be there and to regroup and all this stuff. What began as complacency and tolerance eventually became apostasy. Which is a big warning sign for us today. Leniency, complacency, lethargy doesn't ever go towards the positive. It always goes towards the negative. Think about that, parents, with your kids. What began as complacency and tolerance became apostasy in the first section of the book of Judges. Second section, from bad to worse. So it goes from bad to worse, especially among the leaders. Even our hero, Samson, you'll see as you read, it's not quite a good picture. The judges became less admirable and less effective. They didn't go anywhere good. The tribes of Israel, you'll see in the second section of Judges, the tribes of Israel succumbed more and more to the Canaanites who were allowed to stay and reside and regroup in the land that God had set aside for his people. And so they start to become more and more like the culture around them like the religion around them. They began to love the things and trust the things that the people around them were trusting instead of the things that God had set aside for them and trusting God himself. Third section of the book of Judges. You have an Israelite society that continues to disintegrate and spiral to the bottom of the pit. You have moral chaos prevailing. Listen to this. This is the key in the book of Judges. You have moral chaos prevailing among the people who are supposed to be a model of a redeemed society to the rest of the world. This was God's people in the book of Judges. We live in a period very similar like the book of Judges. I would argue that, you know, post fall garden, right, is just a series of bad events, right? We want to get back to the good old days. The good old days were before the fall happened. But we live in a period just like this. Everyone, in, in the book of Judges, it says that everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Our world is not any different. 
It's not been any different since Adam and Eve in the garden decided to do what was right in their own eyes. That was the point of their, cho- their choosing was we will discern for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. So it says here in the book of Judges, you see this coming to fruition. Even after God has blessed them tremendously and brought them out of Egypt and brought them into the promised land and so on and so forth, here we have everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. You see, the idea of postmodernism and relativism isn't a new idea in our culture. It's just a repeat of the past. We, too, live in an era that just like Judges describes, what you see in the book of Judges, when everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes, then you begin to see the fruit of the oppressiveness of autonomy. When people want to do what is right in their own eyes, they begin to oppress everyone around them. Here's the reality. As someone I read this week said this, unabashed and unbridled selfishness becomes every bit as horrifically injurious to others as authoritarianism is feared to be. Everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. The Israelites are rotting to the core. But even, here's the deal, even in the midst of the chaos of the period of the judges, you'll see a hint of future hope. We read in the book of Judges, in those days, Israel had no what? They had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. But what's he saying there? What's the author saying? What is God saying to his people? What is he saying to us? What you have, even in the midst of the book of Judges, is a hint. A hint. It's just a hint. But nevertheless, it's a hint. At a redemptive monarchy to come. There will be a redeeming king that will come someday. Now there will be foreshadowing of this as we get to such as King David, but there will come a king who will fix it all. And so it's in the midst of this context that the book of Ruth takes place. Let's read the beginning of chapter 1. We'll read all of chapter 1 and come back and I'll preach again on a different portion of chapter 1 next week. It says this in verse 1, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malin and uh, Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These two, these took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughter-in-law to return to the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, I just lost my spot. 
But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And a woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Let's pray. Father, as we study this passage this morning, Father, may our hearts be humbled. May we be filled with hope. May we turn from the things that we worship to worship you alone. That we might bring great honor to your name and good to our lives. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> A couple quick things here as we seek to understand a Hebrew narrative. First of all, it's this, very simple. The story, largely in Hebrew narrative, is developed mostly through the dialogue. I guess you have the narrative of events and stuff going on, but you really, really, really got to pay attention to the dialogue. What's being said from one character to the next? That clues you in to what's happening. The second thing is that most often, right in the middle of a passage or a story or a verse, in Hebrew narrative, there's a turning point. There's a point where you see this, this spiraling down. Often you see this in the book of Psalms. Where there's a spiraling down in despair. And then something switches. And then you see this progression towards God and hopefulness in Him. You see a critical moment in a story helping us understand, oftentimes, the point of the passage. The turning point helps us understand the point of at least that section or of that story or that narrative. We have such a turning point in chapter 1. It's in between geographical locations. You see this turning point in between Moab, the pagan city, and Bethlehem. Both geographically and spiritually this is a turning point in the passage. So they have left Israel, they've left Judah, went to Moab, and now they're on this journey back, but they're in between these two places. And there's this moment in between here where our turning point takes place. Look with me at verse 16. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Now look at this verse. Ruth has a commitment to Naomi, her mother-in-law. I told you this at the very beginning. This is a great thing, something that's admirable. She wanted to care for her mother-in-law. She wanted to be with her. She was devoted to her and to her well-being. Again, certainly something to emulate, something to do ourselves. But the passage is about much more than that. Here's what we see at the turning point in this passage. We see 
the personal conversion of Ruth. You see this pre-Christ salvation of Ruth. You see her conversion. Remember, remember, Naomi and Elimelech were Israelites sojourning in Moab and their sons took pagan wives. They took Moabite wives to be theirs. This was strictly prohibited. Listen, this wasn't an issue, though, of marrying a different race. It was an issue of marrying someone who didn't worship the same God. Again, Ruth was a Moabite. And here she says these words. They're key. Your God shall be my God. Again, I'm sure Ruth has incredible love for Naomi, but in the midst of Naomi sending them back to Moab because of the famine, what does she even, what does she even say to, to Ruth and them? Go back to your gods. Go back to your gods. What's she say? She's indicating for us the, the past life of Ruth to some extent, showing us this is Ruth worshipped other gods, not the god of Naomi. And here, Naomi says, I don't want to go back there. I want your God to be my God. You see, the turning point is both physical in the sense of leaving Moab to go to Judah. It's also spiritual. She is leaving the gods of Moab and turning to the God of Judah. To the God of Israel. We have the spiritual conversion of Ruth. See, Jewish readers, when they would, would have been reading the Hebrew text here, would have picked up on signals in the Hebrew language that unfortunately for many of us, in depending on the translation that you have, will miss what the Hebrew language and what the author of, of Ruth and ultimately God is trying to communicate to us. I see the Hebrew word, I, you know, I don't like, just hang on, nerd out for just a second, okay? The Hebrew word shub is translated in this passage as return. Translated as return. You'll see it in verses 6, 7, 8, 10, 16, and 22. That's six times in one, pa- in one chapter, the Hebrew word shub translated here as return. Now, when the Hebrew readers would have been reading this, they wouldn't have seen one word for return, and then a different phrase for return, and then another word for return, and then a, a fourth phrase for return. I don't, don't want to pick on any particular translation, so I'll leave the name of the translation out, but there's a translation that I'm sure many of you have, and it's a fine translation, but they missed the point in this passage. At one point, they'll say return, and the next time it says going back, or, and the next time it says turning back. And, 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 and all, even though that's all correct, like that translation is correct, it's missing the, the weight of what the Hebrew author was trying to communicate. I will say the, the ESV, even, even King Jimmy gets this one pretty well. Like return. The Hebrew word, when they had been reading this, it would have been return. A verse later, return. A verse later, return. A verse later, return. 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 And as they're reading through this, they're hearing this word spilled multiple times. And the repetition of this word is meant to signal something really important. The word in the Hebrew in the Old Testament is the main word for this idea. Turning back to God's covenant grace and mercy. This idea of return, we see all throughout the Old Testament the idea of returning back to God's covenant grace 
and mercy. It's the main word used for the idea of repentance and conversion. Turning away from false gods to worship the one true and living God. Turning away from breaking the covenant to upholding the covenant. Turning away from the things that God despises and turning towards God's grace and mercy. We've talked about this a bit in this church, the idea of repentance and that it's more than sorry. Like it's more, sorry is really just the admission portion of repentance. It's the beginning portion of repentance. And then repentance is the idea of walk, turning around, walking it back. That's what you see happening here. Naomi and Ruth, they were in Moab, walking away from God in sin. They turned, and now we're on the journey back to covenant faithfulness with God. That's what the Hebrew readers would have picked up. And if your translation says return, 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 then you should pick up on the same thing. That is the picture painted for us here in Ruth 1. The idea of returning to God's covenant, grace, and mercy. Look below the surface at what God is doing in this story. Okay? God is working out the conversion of Ruth. He is working out the conversion of a pagan Gentile, false God-worshipping woman. That's what he's doing in the midst of this. In the midst of, bigger context, right? What's going on in Israelites' history? What's happening? They've abandoned God. It's in chaos and moral bankruptcy. And what's God doing? Rescuing a pagan Gentile woman in the midst of it. Rescuing her. Drawing her. Making her one of his. And this idea of repentance and conversion and God's rescue will run through the whole story. And the picture just gets clearer as we go. Quoting here, when we hear it again and again, we cannot possibly miss what this story is about. It's about turning back to God. It's about returning to His grace. Indeed, this is one of the greatest and perhaps the most detailed accounts in the Old Testament of how God sovereignly works to bring someone to faith. The book of Ruth. God's faithfulness. God's unceasing kindness, particularly in the work of conversion is the theme we'll see all throughout this book. But not just the conversion of someone else, but the walk of salvation for each of us as God pursues and works in Ruth. So the first thing I want you to see is that the saving plans of God often begin in His secret and sometimes dark providences. The saving plans of God often begin in His secret and sometimes dark providences. Right? We're in the middle of the book of Judges. It is very bleak. At the beginning, we are journeying from Bethlehem to Moab. This family, right, if we go back to the beginning of chapter 1, this family of two sons is struggling for food and sustenance, right? We're in the middle of a famine. In a place, now think about this. There's a famine in a place that was supposed to be flowing with milk and honey. A place where God had promised such provision. There was a famine. Remember when God made his covenant with the people and Moses? If you go back and, and read through those, we don't have time right now, but God's blessings would be poured out if they were what? Faithful to his covenant promises. 
judgments and curses would result from what? Unfaithfulness and apostasy. Now, yes, bigger picture, we see God, God will keep his covenant and ultimately rescue us through Jesus. Yes, but here at the surface, God's blessings we poured out, if they were faithful, judgment and curses would fall out, would would roll out if they were unfaithful. The curse concerning the land is coming true. It's a time when people were not doing what God said. His promises to curse the land were coming true. There was no food in the fields. There was nothing to eat in the barns. And here's the key. The author of Ruth knows that this is what's happening. The author of Ruth is aware of how this story fits into God's greater plan of redemption. She understand, the author rather understands what's happening. The author understood, here listen to this, that the famine is a warning light for God's people. It's God saying, something's not right, y'all. This is not the way things are supposed to be. And so what happens is right here in the middle of the struggle is this little family. No Ruth, no Orpah yet, just Naomi and her husband or two sons. And God is not saying just to the nation of Israel, turn back to me. But even to this little family, God is saying, turn back to me. Turn back to me. Turn back to me. I am the God of grace and mercy. Turn back to me and I will give you plenty. Repent of your ways and follow me. Come back to me. I will forgive your sins. I will wash you. I will care for you. Turn back to me. Right here, you see, even in the midst of famine, you see God calling his people back to him. Right in the middle of the darkness. You see, the obvious truth is we must turn toward God in the middle of life's challenges. That's obvious truth. I understand that. The que- as I was talking to someone just yesterday, out in the middle of the woods, literally, and we were talking about this idea, and the question was, why don't I? Why don't I? I think we all would have to ask that same question. Why don't I? In the middle of life's challenges, why don't I? We must, though, turn towards God. Listen, it doesn't matter whether the dark times are because of your sin or because of the brokenness of this world beyond your personal responsibility. Whatever the reasons are for the darkness that we're in, we are to learn from this passage that we must turn to God in the middle of life's dark challenges seeing that He is at work drawing us to Himself. Oftentimes, He does this by showing us the bleakness of every other option. Let me ask you a question. How often do you judge the circumstances of your life, the events of your life, as God's discipline? How often? Or does it always just seem to be happenstance? Uh, that just, like you just chuck things up to happenstance. Or you chuck things up, well, that's the devil trying to oppose me. I mean, maybe, maybe, I mean nothing, nothing is ever happenstance. The second one could potentially be true. I mean, what, what about the idea? Maybe, maybe the dark things in life are sometimes God's steady hand of discipline upon you. I mean, all, ultimately, all of life is a series of providentially ordered events meant to bring you closer to God, meant to lead you away from 
the worship of other gods to worshiping him, to, to lead you out of the valley of dry bones into the land of flowing with milk and honey. I mean, that is ultimately God's desire and his plan, and he providentially orders everything for that purpose. But, but how often do we see like the famine in our life as God's discipline upon us for our good, ultimately? Listen, I, I want to bring this perspective as well. Sometimes even the things you perceive as good could actually just be God simply giving you what you want out of discipline. Right? So that just like Ecclesiastes, you could explore the end of that and be crushed under the weight of your own idolatry. I mean, that, listen, you understand, that's what's happening in Israel at this point. That's the picture, that's the context of the book of Ruth. The people are doing whatever they want. What, what do you think it means when they're doing whatever is right in their own eyes? It means they're doing whatever they want. God is giving them, God is letting them have everything that they want. God has removed some restraints and let them have the sports teams they want, the wealth they want, the sexual promiscuity they want, the TV shows they want, the successful children they want, the jobs they want. God is pulling it back so they can have it. And I just wonder how many times we sit there and think in the midst of even the mild success we have in our lives that could this be God's discipline upon me, letting me have what I want? But in the middle of this, he has taken their food away. He's taken the thing away that they need for living and sustenance. They, he's disciplining them. I would just encourage you, be careful that you're rightfully assessing the events in your life, that you don't miss God's call of repentance to you. Now, I would encourage you this, just as, as a side note. I think the scriptures would give us warning against doing that only within yourself. That we need other people around us. Some of us are going to be very prone to assessing everything as just good and happenstance and God and I are good and this is God's blessing. This is affirmation of my life. There's other of us that are going to be prone to assessing everything as God's judgment upon our lives, okay? That's why we can't do it alone, right? That's why we have the body. That's why we have the scriptures. That's why we have the spirit. We cannot do that on our own. But still the warning's the same. Naomi and Elimelech missed it. They missed the reality of God's loving discipline upon their lives. And instead of trusting God, instead of turning back to God in repentance, what do they do? They move to Moab. They move to Moab. What do they go to Moab for? For food. Now listen, this is different than going from Kroger to Dorothy Lane Market looking for a special ingredient that Kroger doesn't carry. Yes, that does happen. You have to cook something other than normal American food for that to happen, but nevertheless, it happens. Here's what you need to read at this point. Here's what you need to read. When, when it says that they go to Moab, they go to Moab, they leave Judah and go to Moab, you need to read this. They move to another God. They begin to worship something else. They move to trust in someone other than God. That's what you need to read when you see that. This move from Judah to Moab represents a lack of trusting in God's provision and his promises in order to trust in the provision of a false god. At the very least, in order to trust their own hands to go make happen what God has promised to give them here. They leave Judah and go to Moab. They missed the fact that God was disciplining them out of love. That he was disciplining them at all. So let me ask you this question too. What God do you reach to when life isn't going the way you want it to? Or when life is legitimately not the way it should be? What God do you reach to? Do you reach for the gods of Moab? Or do you reach 
for the God who created and sent his son to die for your soul, who do you reach to? Do you reach to the God of pragmatism? I just get A plus B, C, and I get everything in order, then life will be good. Do you reach for the God of greater control or the God of greater influence or the God of comfort? What do you reach for when life is not the way it should be? Listen, you and I reaching for the God of pragmatism or greater control is the same as the person who reaches for the God of alcohol. Reaching for something else to fix what's going on. Naomi and Elimelech reach for the God of Mo- the gods of Moab. If we go there, life will be taken care of. So they turn their backs to the Lord and move to Moab. Listen, instead of seeking God's grace, they seek to make things happen themselves. But listen, God has promised to bless certain places. We should run to them. God has promised to bless certain places. Run to them. Instead, Naomi and Elimelech run away from them. Let's think again. Think about the context here. Naomi and Elimelech are leaving the only place on earth that God has promised to give to his people and to provide for them. It's in this place. I will care for you here. They leave that place. They leave it. The place he had promised to bless them and provide for all their needs. This holy place where God has promised to be with his people. And they leave that. They leave that. Here's what they want. Here's what they want. Naomi and Elimelech want this. God's provision apart from God's promises. They want God's provision. They want God's blessings apart from God's promises. They want the good things of God apart from God himself. That's what we do. We look for the good things apart from God. We find our security in our money. We find our rest in our power. We find our peace in comfort. We find our treasure in the affirmation of other people. Their affirmation of us. We want all the things God promises us in Jesus, security and rest and peace and treasure, in Jesus apart from the actual promise of life in Christ through repentance and faith. We want these things. We want to grab these things. We're willing to move to Moab to get them. These things that God has promised to give us. But he has a promise to give them to us in Moab. He's promised to give them to us in Jesus. But Naomi go to live among the Moabites. Now, I don't know if you know, remember the history of Moab, but Moab himself was the son of the incestuous relationship between Lot and his older daughter. The Moabites have a very bleak, poor, God-hating history. And then what happens? What happens to them in Moab? They spend 10 years in Moab. Listen, when we turn our backs on God, we never intend for it to be for long. I'm sure that Naomi and Elimelech will just go, we'll get some food, get through this famine, and we'll go back to Israel, back to Judah specifically. When we turn our backs on God, it's, it's never intended to, to be for long. It's just for this week because I've got a lot going on. It's just for this conversation with my child because I really got to get them to see my point. It's just for this season of life because my marriage seems to be doing okay. It's just for this decision because it's unique and different than any other decisions in my life. 
But let me ask you this question. I want to harken back to our series over the summer. Where has God promised that his blessings would flow? Where? Through his voice, his ear, his body, right? Through the word, the scriptures, through prayer and communion with him, and through fellowship with the saints. These are the places where God has promised that his blessings would flow. So on a very practical note here, how often do you turn your back on these things? In a very real sense, that is practically how you are turning your back on God. Now you could use these things for the wrong reasons and then so also be turning your back on God. But God has promised his blessings would flow. How often do we turn our back on God here in order to go find these things in Moab? Let me ask you this question. It's going to seem rather blunt. But when we do this, when we turn our backs on God, what do you think is going to happen? What do you think is going to happen? When we want God's provision apart from his promises and we turn our backs on him even for a moment. Listen, Naomi, let's just talk about the story. Naomi finds herself in the middle of a nightmare. Like this is totally different than, than even widows in our day, although we're called to so care for the widows and so on and so forth. But, but this is in a place where she's without hope. Her husband dies. She has no provision, and then her sons die, right? She's in the middle of a nightmare, and her sons, as they move to Moab, predictably marry Moabite women. She's in the middle of a nightmare again after living a decade in Moab. Both of her sons are dead. She's left without her husband, without her two sons. She has two pagan daughter-in-laws. Left in despair, no one to provide for her, and no one to provide for her daughter-in-laws, of which she feels some measure of responsibility for, clearly, as we see in the story. She has no living fruit from her womb. She's alienated, alone, in a foreign country, and far from God. Thirteen and twenty-one. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out, what? Against me. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Now, now, we can't rush beyond this. We're going to come back and deal more with Naomi next week. We can't rush beyond this and go, oh, well, yeah, but God is up here, you know, working below the surface for this bigger picture. And so, yes, that is all true. We'll get there in a second, but we can't get there too quick. I'm sure she called out to God, what have I done Listen, they move, they move to live with pagans and their children marry pagans. What did they think was going to happen? What did Elimelech think was going to happen? Why do you and why do I do something and think that something to the contrary is going to happen? For example, when we, when, when we fail to spend time in the Word, pointing our hearts to worshiping the true, glorious, and living God, what do we think is going to happen? Like, do we think our marriage is going to thrive? Do we think that our kids are going to magically worship God? Or listen, when we teach our kids that everything else is more important than the one true God, what do you think is going to happen? Listen, at this point, the Old Testament teaches that children of a mixed marriage not a racially, but this mixed marriage with other gods, were, that this mixed marriage, they were not allowed into the assembly of the Lord for ten generations. That was the consequence. You know what ten generations looks like for your children to not be allowed in the assembly of God? That's 400 years. Apart from God's rescuing work in Ruth's life here, that is the fate for Naomi and Elimelech's kids. Listen, if this seems harsh, what did they think was going to happen? If it seems harsh, 
uh, 400 years, we should remember that everything about Moab spelled alienation from God and from his promises. They worshiped the gods of nature. They worshiped things such as ritual prostitution, etc. They were far from God. Again, let me ask this pointed question. What do you think is going to happen? Listen, we need to be warned for our foolishness is continually justified by our idolatrous and prideful hearts. We get into it and we can justify whatever we want. Maybe even justify not hearing what's being said right now. But next we need to see life's challenges are never simple, but they can always be filled with hope. Life's challenges are never simple, but they can always be filled with hope. Hear me clearly. The explanation for Naomi's situation is not so simple. You cannot say to Naomi, you deserved everything you got. You left God's promised land, and so here you are. Do you understand that others did the same thing, and we have no history of this happening to them? Sometimes people would do this and would have an appearance of flourishing. You cannot say to Naomi, you deserved it all. Yes, Naomi and Elimelech sinned. Yes, they ran from their sin in further sin. But their experiences, here's what you need to hear, their experiences are far more complex than simply being a punishment for sin. Yes, it's part of it, but it's more than that. Listen, do you understand? We deserve nothing from God but his punishment. That's what you and I deserve. This is true. But we cannot make oversimplified conclusions about Naomi's life or even our life or to each other's lives. Her suffering is not explainable merely in terms of her sin. In part, yes, but it's not the whole picture. We cannot look at each other's lives and simply say, well, there you are in the midst of your suffering because you've sinned. Yes, in part, that's quite possibly true and, and oftentimes more than likely is. But it's not the whole picture. It's just part. Quoting, God is too majestic, too infinitely wise in his providences, to be reduced to simple formula when he brings his children into experiences and suffering. Think about the suffering of the prostitute in Luke 7. Think about her suffering. Yes, much of her suffering was because of her sin. She had turned to another God for her provision. But her sin and her suffering, that was not the only thing going on. It wasn't the only thing happening. It wasn't the whole picture. When we are in the midst of suffering, yes, indeed, whatever sin is present must be owned, repented, and returned to God. Yes, that is still true. That is what Naomi needed to do. That is what Ruth is doing here. We must return to the Lord. But listen to me, church. You need to know this. I need to know this. In the midst of of our challenges, our suffering, even our sin. There is always more to the story. There is always a God working through the darkness. You see that picture in Naomi's life. You see that picture in Ruth's life. They have turned their back on God in defiance. And you see God working 
There is always a God making good of the bad at the price of the blood of His Son. Indeed, hope in the darkness is that we... We often want to give ourselves and other people hope in the darkness by comparing our darkness to someone else's darker darkness. There's always someone suffering more than me. Listen, hope in the darkness comes by looking not at someone else's darkness, but by looking at the darkest dark there has ever been. The darkness of the cross. The place where the perfect Son of God was slain for sin He did not commit. For my sin and for yours. And it's in that darkest moment that God works the greatest good. The redemption of His children who would bring glory to His name for all eternity. You see, if God can make good out of the death of His Son, then surely He can make good. He can work good. He can be in control. He can be working things even in the midst of our sin. He can be working things to save us, to rescue us, to work in the lives of those around us. If you, if you haven't picked this up on the New Test, in, in the Bible, God does a pretty good job at using very broken and sinful people to do great and glorious things for Him. The only person that doesn't fit that description is His Son, Jesus. Uh, as I was reading a couple years ago in a book, I said... Uh, you know, we don't give encouragement by taking someone into a cancer ward when they have a cold, telling them, see, it could be much worse. Although I'm sure taking some of our, some people in there might be helpful to some extent. We help people in the middle of darkness by showing them that God can certainly do good from this if He can work good out of the darkness of the cross. You see, there's always more to the story. There was more to Naomi's story. We'll see that unfold in the next few weeks. You see, if God can make good in Naomi's story, if God can make good in the death of His Son, He can make good in our lives. In, in the life of a child of God, God is always behind the story, working out the salvation of His sons and daughters. Philippians tells us what? He will see to completion the work that He has started. There was a work started in Naomi. There was a work started in Ruth. And God will see it to completion, even in the midst of the darkness caused by their own sin. Let me ask you this question as we conclude. Why did God show a Moabite pagan woman grace? Why would God show grace to a pagan like you and me? Listen, God has a mission for His people to be a kingdom of priests or a channel of redemptive blessing to his creation. The success of this mission, though, has little to do with you and little to do with me, but has everything to do with a covenant-keeping God. It's what we see in this picture with Ruth and Naomi. She ran. God rescues her. God would accomplish His redemptive purpose no matter what. He will make it happen. God is providentially ordering all. God is at work saving His children, rescuing them. God exalts His Son Jesus. Listen, God exalts His Son Jesus when He brings His redemptive work to reality in the lives of His kids. Do you understand that? Ephesians, go to Ephesians, right? God is working to 
surmise everything to bring to the surface as the main point, the exaltation of his son Jesus, to make everything a footstool to him. And what's, how in part does he do that? By bringing redemption as a reality in the lives of his people. And what I want you to know is that even in the midst of our running, God is still at work. Yes, we should turn and repent. Don't go to Moab. Don't do it. Stop. Repent now. Turn to him. There's no hope in Moab. There's hope in God. That's it. There's hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. But even in the midst of our running to Moab, for his children, there's always more to the story. Let's pray. Father, thank you for rescuing us from Moab. Even daily, oftentimes, our wanting to run to Moab or situation from situation to situation. We, we want to run to Moab, situation with our spouse, and we want to turn to another God to make happen what we want to happen in the situation or with our kids or with our coworkers or in our own hearts and our minds and dealing with our emotions and such. We, we just want to run to Moab to fix the problem. Father, help us to not run to Moab. Help us to run to the cross. To run to the cross, not to the empty gods of Moab. Let us run to the empty cross. Where there's an empty tomb, but a throne occupied. Let us run there. But Father, also, please, by your Spirit, remind us that for those that you have chosen and rescued, that even when we run to Moab, you are still at work. You are still at work in our hearts and our lives, sometimes letting us have Moab so that we would see how empty Moab is. But you are still at work. You will still bring about the conversion and the finished work of salvation in each of us by your grace, for your glory, and for our good. Father, I pray as we partake in communion today, as we partake in the Lord's Supper, the, the Lord's Table, that we would be reminded that our journey to Moab and the sin that we committed there was paid for by the blood shed for us by your Son Jesus on the cross. May our faith be only in that for our hope and righteousness. But may we be reminded that our conversion was paid for and bought by the blood of your Son Jesus. Father, may we see as Ruth sees in this saving person called Boaz to rescue her out of her plight. May we see that Jesus has rescued us. He didn't just give us food from a field, but gave us his broken body. Well, Father, I pray as we partake that we would be brought to humble repentance, filled with gracious hope. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what you've done through your Son, Jesus. Father, may you be glorified in us. Father, it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Let me give you a couple instructions real quick. Uh, we don't practice closed communion. We practice open communion. And what I mean by that is you don't have to be a member here to partake with us. 
but the, the warnings in Scripture are clear in 1 Corinthians is such that if we're going to partake in communion, you need to be walking in repentance and faith. So that means that if you're not a follower of Jesus or not sure if you're a follower of Jesus, then, uh, then don't partake. Sit back, just enjoy your seat and, and watch. But then I would encourage you to talk to somebody after. Talk to me. Talk to Pastor Rusty, Pastor Greg, or someone else around here and ask them, what is that? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? I'll tell you now, to, to lay down your righteousness, trust in Jesus' righteousness, to trust that he died to pay the price for your sins and died in your place to make you right before God. But it also means not just if you're not a follower of Christ, but also if you're a follower of Christ walking in sin that you're not willing to deal with. First Corinthians talks about how we... We drink judgment upon ourselves when we do that. But I would encourage you, listen, repent now and partake. Repent now and don't wait. Repent now. Begin the process of repentance now and partake. Be reminded of God's gracious forgiveness through the blood. Why would you repent anyways? Why would you repent if you didn't believe there was forgiveness through Jesus.